say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Today on Feminine Roadmap, I'm interviewing Helene Berger. She is sharing her journey of joy with Alzheimer's as her husband of over 50 years was diagnosed and what it took for her to find a way to make his last years the best years. This episode is powerful and soft-spoken Helene is sometimes difficult to hear, but I hope that you find the great value, hope, and joy that she brings to this very difficult conversation. You are not going to want to miss this episode. So grab a cup of something wonderful and stay tuned. Hello, Feminine Roadmappers. It is Gina here. And today I have a wonderful, powerful message to share with you with my guest, Helene Berger. She is the author of Choosing Joy, Alzheimer's, A Book of Hope. This is a powerful story of how a couple facing Alzheimer's chose to live fullness as long as possible. It's also a guide to caregivers everywhere, not just caregivers of Alzheimer's, but it's a universal book helping people cope with difficult caregiving journeys. So Helene, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Gina, let me return the thanks to you for the incredible job you're doing to help women all over the world. And it, it's really impressive. And I'm so happy to be part of your tribe. Thank you so much. You know, the reason that I really wanted to have you on the show is we're seeing more and more Alzheimer's is becoming very much a household word. And I'm seeing it in a lot of the PR things coming through my podcast mailbox. It's just a very important topic right now. And I think that you have a powerful message to share and there's such light and hope to it. So without further ado, why don't you share a little bit about yourself, your husband, Adie, and your story? What led you to write this book? Okay. Uh, I'll give you very briefly the history. But first of all, I must say that I was very blessed to be married to a very special, wonderful man with integrity and warmth and kindness and, and just pure, pure and ethical man. And it was after our 50th wedding anniversary that my husband, Edie, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And we went all over to different doctors and had many different opinions and many different suggestions. Finally, we got to the appointment we were craving, and that was the head of the state-of-the-art Wien Center for Memory Disorder with Dr. Gora. When Dr. Gora pronounced the fatal words, three of them, you have Alzheimer's, he gave my husband a moment and then said, how do you feel? And my husband responded very simply, very matter-of-factly, I don't want to live anymore. 
Oh, my goodness. And I sat there catching my breath. It's not a surprise uh, when you get the diagnosis. You go because you do the troubling signs. But it's always a shock. No one, no matter what the symptoms are that you try to deny because you hope it's just old age, you hope this and you hope that. When you're faced with those words, it's always a shock. And I don't think anyone is ever prepared for what's ahead. You just can't be. Within the first year or so, he went down the usual path. Frustration and, and irritability and rigidity and all the symptoms that go with it. Never for me, thank goodness, never, never violence. But by the second year, everyone knew him as the man with the radiant smile. Strangers would stop me and say, I've never seen your husband without a smile on his face. Let me skip forward again and then we'll go through the middle years. But if I go fast forward to the final, what turned out to be final night of his life, Unexpectedly, he was healthy, he was fine. And it just so happened we took out that night 17 close friends for dinner. I said, thank you. This was six years later, six years later. I said, thank you for their kindness and their attention. And I didn't tell Lady ahead of time, I knew we were going out for dinner with friends. I didn't tell him who was coming because I didn't want him to feel the weight of the responsibility of remembering names. I didn't want to do that to him. When they walked in, he greeted, after six years, every one of those friends by name. Wow. Which is a wow. And then he was in a wheelchair because he had fractured his hip two and a half years before. And by the way, just as a parenthesis, I had no extra help the first three and a half years I had a wonderful, wonderful housekeeper who uh, was there three days a week and who adored him because he was typically, he was kind and gentle and wonderful with him. So we were all sitting down and he raises his glass uh, to make a toast, water, he never drank. <laughs> and he makes the most profound, articulate toast of thanks to the guests, thanking them for their kindness, for their attention, for their calls, for taking care of me. When we left that evening, two couples came over to me and said the identical words, are you sure he's got Alzheimer's? And so you asked why I wrote the book, that was a long answer to that. Why I wrote the book, because this was a phenomenal story to go from, I don't want to live anymore, to this man who was always full of joy and the book is how a totally unprepared woman was able to get those results, not by herself, but with my husband. I had a partner, and in doing this together, and he was a part of every decision that was made. And what motivated me to write the book, by the way, not that I ever dreamed of a book. Let me back up. I've been writing for 40 years because I've had many positions of leadership and I would travel around the country speaking, and I always wrote my own speech. But I wrote speeches. I wrote speeches about what I learned from others. This was my voice for the first time. And it never occurred to me to write a book. But as we go on, and I give you some of the examples, I found myself writing little notes to myself on scraps of paper, usually at a concert, because 
we loved music and we went to lots of concerts. And I would look for a blank page where there wasn't too much writing. So if I had a thought of what worked or what didn't work, I could jot it down. And I had tons of notes. Often I transferred them to my computer. Many times I forgot to do it and wish I had. Uh, but in those last years, so many people saw the change, what he was two years before and what he was doing then, which was absolutely impossible earlier. And people kept coming to me asking, what are you doing? What's happening? And I said, what is the medication he's on? And frankly, it had nothing to do with medication. He was on the standard stuff that everybody takes. But it had to do with what I'll speak with, probably the rest of this hour on what we do together. And in his last year or so, I think it was then, I had the thought, no, I really have something that could help so many people in this world. And I started taking my notes more seriously. And I will say not because it was on the back corner of my desk. And when the book came out, officially on May 10th, it was eight years after he passed away. Wow. It was gelling. And I tell you, if the book had come out three years sooner, it would not have been the same book. Because in all that time, I was living through this and thinking. And I had new insights and new thoughts. And it became much more philosophical and much fuller and much richer because I had the time to digest and to step back. Mm. And it's been a wonderful and amazing experience. Well, you know, I was thinking as you're writing this book, I can imagine that eight years is actually not that long because when we lose a loved one, especially after what, 56 years of marriage, you know, that adjustment has to be massive. And the emotions that we feel in grief, and I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, there's a certain grieving that goes on as you watch someone lose their ability to be, you know, we want our husbands to be strong. They're used to being the man. And there's a lot of emotional things that probably happen. So eight years, you probably needed that time just to process some of your own emotional journey so that you could speak clearer. It just seems to me that that would be the way it would go. You are correct. Although in reality, it's not sudden at that point. It was sudden when he's diagnosed. My world... Yes totally changed. But during the course of those six years, you have a different relationship. Okay. The conversation that one has in the past doesn't exist. It's games. It's keeping him intellectually stimulated day in and day out. And, and I found, and I write later at some point in the book, I write, it is so important to keep the relationship with friends because you, you need the intellectual stimulation. The other was a very different role uh, that I played out. The book is about our actions, our actions, not, not, not the patient's actions, and our, our own frustration and our own, how we handle, how we handle it. And throughout the book, I discussed that the attitude that we bring to our loved one can either diminish, demean, agitate, or bring support and contentment and dignity, and even, as I'll explain shortly, and even creativity. And most books on Alzheimer's 
describe an irreversible decline. Uh, every time I speak, no matter how short the interview is, is that this book offers no guarantee. Every case is different. Every person is different. And the important caveat that I include throughout the book is that there are hundreds and thousands of men and women who have given beautiful, loving, uh, self-sacrificing support and ended up with the patient who doesn't know their name, who doesn't recognize them, and, and sometimes with the patient who's violence. So I don't want anyone to walk away from this book and think, this is the panacea, and I'm going to do this, and, and everything's going to be fine. My case is very, very rare, and I, will, I try to delineate throughout the book what worked for me, what did not work for me, and the mistakes I made. It's a very candid book. And I, I certainly, in the first year when he was going downhill, uh, I didn't have any of the techniques. I did have a fierce, fierce desire to make our lives together as fulfilling and as beautiful as was humanly possible while I still had it. And it was because of that instinct to do that, that we together devised techniques that, that made the difference. And before I tell you what some of the techniques are, just let me say that in that, I went very fast forward to the last night of his life. After the second year or so, during that time, final and certainly the final two or three years of his life, he began to do things that were unthinkable earlier. Uh, he went back to playing the piano every day for an hour, and he hadn't played in years. Uh, he played, that, that was part of him. He rich, he loved music. I introduced things that were new. I introduced Sudoku when he was at first or second year. And he was always known and thought of himself as a mathematician. When I kicked a little, he would slide math problems under the doors of them. He loved math. And I thought, what a perfect thing this will be for him. He didn't get it. He didn't understand where all the little numbers went, all those little boxes, and it was frustrating. When I introduced it two years later, he ate it up. So you could see the mind changing, and it didn't hurt that I sat with him when he did it every night. That I was at his side, that didn't, that didn't hurt. And, and that's interesting, because he didn't, computer games didn't interest him, but that was alone. Whatever he did with me, he was, he was happy to do. But um, there were so many, drawing. He never drew anything in his life. I don't even think he knew the names. He's a brilliant man. I don't even think he knew the names of the colors unless it was weird blue and green in front. And one night uh, after dinner, I set a beautiful new pad on front of him and crayons and magic markers and whatever. And um, I said, draw something. And he looked at me like I was nuts and said, what? And I said, whatever makes you happy. He looked up, and he started drawing. And for the next three years of his life, I have hundreds and hundreds of his drawings. And the drawings were so full of joy. And in fact, the cover of the book, uh, which I'm, I'm sure you, I, I, I hope you have it to send. The cover of the book, Choosing Joy, the O is the son that he drew two months before he passed away. And he was so proud of his drawings that he always signed and dated them. He rarely titled them, although he did often. Um, and this one he titled, 
happy son. And you cannot draw the way he did if you were the depressed man that he was on the day of the diagnosis. So what, I, what I'd like to go on to, if I can, is some of the techniques and some of the methodology that we, we developed together, really, as I tried to reach my goal of keeping his life as full as it could be. I'm going to give a few examples. But the principle behind it is, whenever I found something that worked, I didn't think, oh, that's a good, I'll do that if that happens again. I worked very diligently to try to find out what was the underlying principle that I could apply to other similar situations. What was it that, that I could learn from this success and apply it to other things? I'll give you two quick examples. One, it was very clear to me before he was diagnosed that he needed to stop driving. He's getting lost, having a few fender benders. And um, I took him to a brilliant, wonderful psychiatrist who I write about in the book. And I went, saw her in advance, and she asked me to bring him in. She knew that, that I was concerned about how, how am I going to tell him he can drive me while I really was terrified of that. What she did in the course of the hour was to say very nonchalantly, matter of factly, you know, lady, uh, you're on a lot of new medication right now, and it, it might be a good idea to stop driving until you see how it affects you. Well, he was a rational man. That made sense. And he said, oh, okay. A month later, we were at a concert at Tanglewood, and I happened to be standing next to someone who said, hey, are you driving home? And he said, very nonchalantly, no, I don't drive anymore. <laughs> I was home free. And what was the principle? Not now versus never. Ah, uh, yes. And I applied that in so many, so many cases. I think the reality of it was he knew he was having a problem. He knew he was getting lost. And I think it was a big relief to him. And he didn't mind that in that month, uh, I go from every place or we had somebody who was helping us in the, in the country house. He would drive him if I couldn't do that. And he got used to it and he liked it and it was much less stressful for him. So that was one example. Another example, and a, and a, a much more important one, even than that, because this pervaded everything we did for the next uh, years. We had a wonderful housekeeper who came in three days a week and uh, she adored him. After he fractured his hip, I needed help. It was, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't lift him. So Lisette helped us for the last two and a half years. And I just realized this minute that I didn't learn what I'm about to tell you until the last two and a half years. And maybe that's why he made such tremendous strides then. So Lisette comes in one morning. And if she had said, Mr. Berger, your breakfast is ready. I would have thought, that's with a nice cheery voice. I would have thought, how lovely is that? She never did that. When I heard it the first time, I got my joy and disbelief. Not your breakfast is ready. So instead, she came in and said, she said, Mr. Berger, are you ready for breakfast? And I couldn't believe it. No matter how cheerily she said, your breakfast is ready, it's still an implied command. Mm. Your breakfast is ready. You have to come and eat now. 
and that was so that was such a crucial crucial lesson and i think after that realization is when the marked change really came to its life anyone who's a, a successful person or anyone in their own job has authority they know what they're doing and if you say to a man or a woman you have to do this you got to do that if you're telling them what to do there's going to be an instinctive rebellion i'm a grown man don't and i over oh, and for the most trivial things instead of sweetie we're going to the doctor soon please go to the bathroom now would you like to go to the bathroom before we get in the car would you like to do drawing would you like to do a uh, play sudoku his television time was greatly limited uh to 45 minutes a day and which movie would you like to watch dear and the point of all this was that everything he did was his decision he owned it he wasn't rebelling about being told what to do 100 times a day and he was a part of every every one of these decisions and it made such a difference in our life he felt empowered he felt loved he felt included and it was just magical that's an incredible thing that you know you had that person in your home who was intuitive enough to connect with you and your your husband in a way that she became part of that positive journey to en- enriching his life and your life because you can never underestimate the power of support right the emotional and physical support that we actually need and i think maybe maybe you can speak to this when you're in a caregiving role it can be very easy to get caught up in so many things that you're thinking about and it's hard on your emotional and mental health if you don't have an outlet yourself if you don't have something to make sure that your cup is filled because pouring out as a caregiver is a very strenuous job right well there is a whole chapter near the end of the book that talks about taking care of yourself. Yes. And I I know from my own experience and the difference when I had help and and how it went. And I was lucky because when he did fracture his hip, I was able to afford the help. By the way, never at night. I never wanted it at night. Um but I would urge no matter what the financial situation is. No one can be alive and human doing this 24/7 it's impossible you're going to go down it's not going to be good for your mate male or female and it's certainly not going to be good uh, for for you probably and it doesn't mean doesn't need a, a trained person with all kinds of degrees and pedigrees it could be a, a high school student who will sit and play checkers or chess or or cards or just someone to, to help you get out for a walk get out for something and it's it is absolutely vital to just sit down and read a book you cannot if you can't survive and so often the the spouse who's giving 24/7 goes down even before uh the patient is there a feeling of guilt for a lot of people when they think i just want to take a walk and oh well, who am i to want to take a walk when my spouse is suffering like is there a whole journey of maybe guilt and kind of like obligation that keeps them bound to overdoing their own energy there sure is and in the beginning i as i told you i included 80 in every decision 
And in the beginning, uh, when I would ask him if he wanted to go to certain things, I was very honest with him. And if, if there was a big event with a thousand people or a charity event, uh, he said, do you think I should be there, dear? And I, at that point, I remember saying once, sweetie, you hated those things when you were, when you were home. Why would you want to go now? And he said, thank you. <laughs> uh, occasionally, I would be invited to a dinner party. I knew that he couldn't sit through a dinner party, and it would be a pall on the whole, on everyone there. And I decided to go. When I went, and it was, it was rare, when I went the first time or two, I felt so guilty. But worse than that, guilt is, is one thing. Worse than that, I was afraid, what will people think? Uh. And man, oh man, is that emotion, emotion to, or a thought to strike from your head. And to my shock, friends would say, people who barely knew me said, Helene, you're handling this so well. <laughs> they were proud of me for doing what I was thought they were going to judge me ill for. Uh, I will say that we were out together a lot for concerts many, many times. We had subscriptions to everything in Florida, and certainly in the summer in Tanglewood. The beauty for me there is that I never had to sit next to him in fear that he was going to talk out and do something inappropriate. He loved music so much. He would scribble his little notes sometimes to remember the theme, and he was a perfect gentleman. And the concerts, which he loved going to, did something else for us. It was his socialization. Mm. He'd always come early, and we always had a seat. We changed our seats always to a seat on the aisle in the last two and a half years when he had his wheelchair. He would come early and sit on the, on the aisle seat. They would take his wheelchair away. And he would hold court. His friends came over for a minute, two, three, speak to him, to chat with him, to ask how he was. And it wasn't taxing for the friends. They wanted to see him. They loved him. But nobody wanted to spend a whole hour, two hours at dinner. So I was very careful to keep the social friendships in his life, but not, not so much to burden himself or, or our friends. So it was a very good solution. Now, I understand that um, music is actually a powerful therapy for people who have memory digression. You know, when they have Alzheimer's or dementia, they use music as well to reach into their soul because somewhere in those memories music is such a powerful part of our lives it connects us to experiences and people and emotions so I, i'm not surprised that music came back into his life did you find that it really brought him so much life to be involved in music that much absolutely there's a there's a wonderful study that's done i write about in the book i won't talk about it now but how nursing homes they, they try to introduce music and people who haven't spoken for years, not a word, start singing along with the songs and, and how music brings them alive. Music was very important to him. And by the way, he stopped talking about how you encourage someone. He stopped playing for about three years. And one day, I looked at him and said, honey, you, you, you loved, you loved, you had such a beautiful time at the piano. Why aren't you playing? He said, because I, I can't play anymore. I said, why? My fingers don't work. I said, honey, would you, would you give me 10 minutes a day? Maybe, maybe your fingers don't work because you stop playing. I said, okay. Within a few weeks, he was at the piano for the rest of his life, an hour every day, playing Bach and 
Mozart and Beethoven or Rachmaninoff and, and, and Brahms and smiling, smiling, smiling throughout all of it. And so I, I think we have a responsibility. We can help by trying to bring back talents that a person had and, and have them go, go back to those things. And as I said before, introducing new ones. I, I want to talk about something else that I just realized I hadn't discussed yet. And that is how we respond. An Alzheimer's patient tends to ask the same question over and over and over again. And we're all human. And when it comes to the third or fourth or fifth time, we might use the, the right words, but our bodily attitude, either an intake of breath or a raised eyebrow, that little pause of a little hint of, hint of, I told you that already, or sometimes even in the tone, the voice can say, yeah, I'm going to the ballet with Elaine, like, for God's sake, don't you, <laughs> I just told you that. And I found that when I did that, it was a punch in the gut for him. And I loved this man, and I didn't want to hurt him, and I said to myself, I am not doing that again. I will absolutely control my body language and my voice inflection. I will answer it the seventh time in the same loving way that I answered it the first time. And I remember going to ballet and looking for a page in the concert program to write, I will not do that anymore. I will not have any signs, body language, that would show my displeasure. And it was very, very hard for me to do Yes, I can only imagine. Very hard. And it became easier and easier because his reaction was so splendid. And if I, and he asked the third time, and I said, sweetie, I'm going to the ballet with Elaine. He said, oh, thanks, I remember. And it was so important that he understand, that I understand. And so many of these things, again, and not just for one specific situation, would go over uh, to anyone. And basically, what pervades the whole book is that we have to understand yes. that the more we treat our loved one with kindness and respect, and the less they are going to feel undermined, the less they're going to feel anger towards us. And it is such a crucial, the more reassurance we can give, the more we can allow our, loves, our loved ones to know that we care about them. And the more we can preserve their dignity, uh, it, it makes all the difference in the world. It's the way we say something. And I remember in the very beginning, early, early on, the doctors and nurses took me aside when the year he was diagnosed, and every one of them took me aside in the hall and let me know what I was in for. And they told me you know, what, what to be prepared for. And I remember coming home one day, we were in his bathroom, and he looked at me with an annoyed look. He didn't say a word, but his eyes looked at me. I, I don't remember the incident. And I, my first instinct was, it's okay, it's only a look, it's not what they warned me about, I can live with that. And then within the next 30 seconds, something inside me screamed, no, you can't. And I remember handling it, and this was before I was thinking about handling things well, but I remember instinctively 
handling it this way. I remember putting my hands on his cheek and saying, dear, do you know how much I love you? Big smile, yes. I said, you just looked at me in a way that that was hurtful. I'm trying so hard, dear. And, And that look, it was really hurtful to me. And he looked at me and said, thank you, dear. I don't want to hurt you. Let me know if I ever do that again. That's the way he was handled. Always, I never, I had plenty of things I needed to talk to him about. It wasn't just easy sailing. Trust me, it was not easy sailing. But I never said anything of importance to him that I wanted to change or correct without saying something positive first. Mm. He was ready to receive because it was said with love. I remember one, one thing that's the same kind of theme. Um, I was getting messages from loving friends who were reporting to me that he's, he was saying uh, inappropriate things to, to them, to women particularly. He was saying words that would, that would never come out of my pure husband's mouth. He never said an off-color word in his whole life. And then one day, I was next to him when I heard him do it. And I took a big intake of breath. <laughs> and I never said a word. When we got home, and I remember every second of this, when we got home, I sat him down and said, Katie, you know how much I love you? And big smile again. And I said, I, I heard you say to Jane tonight, actually what he said is, hey, I'm looking at your boobs. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. And she was wearing a very modestly, oh, slightly, almost no cleat. And, I, and, and he, he sort of put his head down. And I said, Aidy, that's not you. That's not, it's embarrassing to me. It's embarrassing to you. And it's embarrassing to Jane. He said, I'm sorry. I won't do that anymore. And I said, look, let's not look back. Let's not look back. Let's think of the future. And let's come up with a secret word uh, so that I can tell you if, if you ever do something inappropriate again. And I, then I was quiet, and he thought, and he thought, and he said, I know, let, let the word be inappropriate. <laughs> I loved it because he was part of the solution. It was, I never imposed things on him. I, I came to him with the problem. And we helped solve it together. Now that's part A on that story. Part B. When he did it again, and of course he did, I would look. I would when I was when I was when I heard it. I didn't say through gritted teeth, "80, that was inappropriate." With anger, I said in his ear, so nobody could hear, "Sweetie, inappropriate." And he would say, "Thank you." I don't know if that voice came off. I would whisper in his ear, sweetie, inappropriate. <laughs> and it, less and less in the final years, he never did it again. But it was that kind of shaping and, and molding and, and always, always letting him know how, how deeply he was loved and respected. And also our kids played a part. They lived in different cities, but he was getting love from everybody. And it, and it was powerful. So you found then that communication and the way that we communicate is a big part of a caregiver's partnership. Because I feel like with a lot of caregivers, it's easy to be the one 
doing the thing to the person. You got it head on. Keep going. And so I hear you saying you took a different tack instead of doing it to your husband, you did it with your husband. You created a partnership so that there was dignity and empowerment and you, you bathed it all in love so that it, there was probably less resentment on both parts. And there was probably a lot less, um, you, you were able to maintain the love in your marriage in a different way, I'm sure. And how did it affect your marriage on the whole? Did you find that it added another dimension or that you had to think differently about your marriage? How did that caregiving role affect you as a wife and husband? That's an excellent question. And it affected me profoundly. Was the role different? Yes. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we didn't have the intellectual discussions about politics in the world. It was a different situation. However, the reality is, and it was shocking to me, but I wrote in the book that my granddaughter asked me a question. I responded, but I wrote in the book, not only did I not love him less, it's a double negative, not only did I, did my love for him diminish, but it positively increased because I had so much respect for the way, the dignity with which he handled this and the way he accepted and the way he moved on and the way he grew in those last years. And I was so proud of him that if anything, I truly loved him more. And, and let me say, this, this was, from the beginning, this was not a storybook marriage. None is. We all have problems to, to work out. And I think in the 50 years before the Alzheimer's, we had done a pretty good job of figuring out how to sol solve problems. And, and maybe that figuring out was there for us at, at this crucial time when it needed to be. But it didn't start out. There were many, there were many issues, especially physical issues. And I, I wrote in the book the list of major surgeries that he had in his life. I'm, I'm filling up now. When I, when I saw it all on one page, I, I actually cried because I thought, my, this poor, gentle, sweet man, generous, kind man, that what, what he went through and how he handled all of it. And that's why I say there are no guarantees. And I, not every woman is going to have this experience, but not every woman is married to an 80 Yeah, <laughs> And there's the gift in all of that journey for you, was to have a man that you could respect and love. Now, this you may or may not be able to answer this question, but if somebody's having the different experience and they have a more combative spouse going through Alzheimer's, do you have some encouragement or advice for them if in the fact, you know, because in the case, some of them do get violent. Oh, absolutely. And so what is the best thing for someone to do? You know, um, I've known people that have had to put them in a separate facility because they kept getting out or they were hitting people. You know, what kind of resources are there for people who are caregiving for a spouse with Alzheimer's? Okay, two answers. Number one, I have to start early. By that I mean once... A patient's reaction is anger. And once that reaction is entrenched, forget it. I, I, I wrote in a book, visited a lovely friend in a hospital. He was 
uh, it was a different disease. It wasn't Alzheimer's, but he was, you know, kind of punchy with a fever. I said, I, I, I love you. And he said, everybody tells me what to do. Don't, don't give me speeches. It was so far gone that any technique that I talked about would not have worked on him. You've got to start as early as you can before, as I told you, the example I gave you before, when, I, when he looked at me crossly, that was not acceptable. And I worked it out in a loving way. So I visited a friend in the hospital who was in bad shape and delusional. And when I tried to say some kind words, uh, his answer was, don't give me speech. Everybody tells me what to do. And it was irrational. But when someone's habit is react with anger, it's, it's almost an impossible habit to break. And so very signs of anger behavior that the patient, you've got to nip it in the bud if you can. Some you can't. And I, I, my heart goes out to struggle with it. The more important thing I want to say is that Alzheimer's patients and those declining with any illness know of their own decline. They're, yeah. keen, they're keenly aware of their, their decline. And their fear of loss and respect and admiration is major. And so everything that we as spouses or caregivers can do to boost them and to make them and show them the dignity that they are entitled to uh, makes, makes all the difference in the world. Mm. You keep using the word dignity and, you know, I'm actually just thinking about as a wife myself, how I don't always respond in the way that I should. And I think, you know, even if you're not caregiving for someone, that is such an important thing. And it just is kind of convicting me a little bit when I don't respond kindly that, you know, as much as we want to be loved and cared for, the other person has that same deep fundamental need to have dignity, to have love and respect. And I think that we should be nurturing those habits because if this comes along and we haven't taken the time to nurture that habit of love and respect and kind words, it's going to be that much harder to try to make that shift when something like Alzheimer's or a major health issue comes along. Let me tell you with a big smile that my friends who received the book early uh, all had beautiful comments. One of the ones that I treasure is the daughter of a very good friend who wrote me this long, beautiful letter and then said, quote, Helene, I want you to know how universal your book is. Mm. I am talking to my husband differently than I ever did before reading your book. Wow. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, that there's always room for improvement. You're saying that. And that's why I say one of the important things for me about this book is that, and I think why it's getting the reaction that it is, is that it is so universal. It is how we treat the people in our lives that make all the difference, whether they're healthy, whether they're declining, and how we handle them, what, the respect we give them. We let them make the decisions and we don't impose. And we all have friends who tell us what to do every minute. And even if they're friends, it drives us nuts, right? <laughs> it's true. I might be that friend. <laughs> no, but, but that comment to me summed up basically everything I, I wanted to say in the book. 
and this has been such an extraordinary, extraordinary experience for me to be able to give. Uh, the world has been so good to me, and to be able to help others in, in what I learned helps them. It's amazing. What part of your journey did things like gratitude? Did you do any kind of meditation? Do you have any kind of spiritual practices? Was there anything that you did kind of to keep your mind set in order through this journey? Because there must have been some support you provided for yourself because we are only human and we have so much capacity to be patient. We only have so much capacity. You know, we do have our breaking points. What did you do, Helene, for yourself to really make sure that you could stay in that loving, kind, dignity-giving place? It's a complicated answer. I learned about meditation in the final chapter in the book, Returning to Life, written a year and a half after he was gone, mm. about the power of meditation. And it is very much a part of my life now. It was not a part of my life then. Uh. Brand new world. However, what kept me going, clearly, was the response from my husband. Watching him go from one thing to something so, so much stronger and so much, and so much happier and so fulfilled, I did not understand when I was going through it, what a difficult job this was. Mm. All I understood was my own absolute joy that I was helping my husband be whole. And it was powerful. It was mm. powerful. So what kept me going is whatever I was doing, and at that point I was taking notes, whatever I was doing that it was helping this beautiful man be himself. And so that was my motivation then. Afterwards, I learned. And, and the other thing that I said earlier, that I did give myself permission to take time to occasionally go out for dinner, to occasionally go to theater, which he couldn't do, and to play tennis. That was it, the tennis court. I was living in, in Miami. We lived in a, uh, a complex, and there were tennis courts there. And I could go down for an hour and play and come up and feel fulfilled. And when I did that, I found... If I give, gave myself the time that I needed, that we all need, when I came back up, there was no, no resentment in me. I gave myself fully to him with full attention and compassion, and I didn't feel deprived. I didn't feel, how am I going to get through this day? So he, he was a large part of it, and I was very blessed to have that. You know, actually, physical fitness in general is a great way to cope with stress, right? My son, who was the 18 years chief of cardiology at Pennsylvania Hospital, said, Mom, you got to get out and exercise when he fractured his hip in that hospital and then in rehab. Mom, I do not want you going to that hospital one day before you either play tennis or walk. And that's not a suggestion, that's a prescription. So exercise, I've been fit all my life, but... I knew from my doctor's orders, my son's orders, don't stop your exercise. You need that to be whole. And it was influences of so many people who were helping me. When I'd go to a play in Massachusetts in the summer, I would go, friends at the theater, and I would come home. 
I was keenly aware driving home that I, there was no one to discuss the play with. Mm. Those moments that I felt more alone than any other. If I was exercising, I was fine. But when I realized that that important intellectual connection for me, I didn't have. I had a lot of else that was very, very good. But I, I remember those moments of driving home. Now, once your husband passed away, can you briefly kind of tell me what your journey of adjustment was for that? Because you said the shock was when he was diagnosed. Not as shocking when he died, but now you have another shift. It was a shock when he died because he was doing better every day, totally healthy. At what I didn't say in the beginning, all the, about two-thirds of the people that were at that restaurant came home, including me, from violent diarrhea. We all got ill, and that's what did him in. He did not die of Alzheimer's, not die of any of his other illnesses. His passing was an absolute shock. The community also saw how well he was doing. And I will say, I never looked around to know, but when I saw the guest book at the funeral, that over 800 people were in attendance. You said 800 people came to 80's funeral. Wow. The days, years, if I was going to, I was on that national board. And when he was gone, and I would fly to New York for the meeting, the first thing I did before I dropped my luggage down was pick up my cell phone to tell him, honey, I'm safe. I'm arrived safely here. And it took me years. And every time I did it, I would cry the way I would cry. Oh. So it was very, very, very difficult, very long. And my friends were wonderful and helped pull me back to life. So I would, I would hear you say that friendship then the friendships you maintained during the time you were a caregiver, being mindful of that need for you, was really the thing that was your lifeline after he passed. During and after, because I gave myself permission to be with friends in order to keep my sanity and to be whole. That's incredible. Well, your story is like, I agree, it's, it is very universal. And whenever someone shares their story, um, it does connect with someone somewhere like you shared the kindness and I felt like, okay, I need to work on my kindness. But if you had to kind of, if somebody had five minutes with you and you really wanted them to capture three really powerful things from what you share and what you've learned, what three gifts would you give to someone? Yes. That's a lot to sum up very quickly, but let me try. All right. First, Life is full of the unexpected mm. and some of it very good and some of it that we certainly would not choose. And how we react makes us who we are and whether we live with contentment and fulfillment, and joy. Mm. You think number two. Okay. Number two, the attitude that throughout the book, the theme that permeates virtually every page, is the attitude we convey to our loved ones makes all the difference. People know when they're loved and they sense when they're loved. And I, I remember the powerful words of Viktor Frankl, 
who was a Holocaust survivor and suffered through those camps and wrote a book, Man's Search for Meaning. The sentence that I remember so clearly was, the thing that no one can take away from us is the right to choose our attitude. Mm -hmm. And throughout this book, I chose consciously the attitude that I wanted to convey to my husband. Mm. Three, uh, hopefully those who read Choosing Joy will come away knowing that we are not the hapless victims of a cruel fate, that we can make a difference, and that we can continue to choose to live with joy. Mm. We are not hapless victims of a cruel fate. We can make a difference. That's incredible. Um, that's an incredible message of hope because, you know, life is difficult. And I, and I keep going back to, you mentioned in your second point that, you know, the attitude we convey makes all the difference. You know, that's our personal responsibility to choose how we physically with our body, which you mentioned in your story, on our faces, in our tone of voices, in the way we breathe, <laughs> you know, oh my goodness, so many things for me to, I'm always in a process of growing and, and I'm so um, grateful that you took the time to share such a personal and powerful story. And it's very, um, it's so great to see that you're still very passionate about it and how much you loved your husband in, in, Sickness and in health. It's very inspiring. I have totally enjoyed this interview. It's been a delight. You are wonderful, and I appreciate you and what you're doing for women and men, but women particularly all over the world. It's inspiring, and thank you. Oh, it is my pleasure. I have had the extreme joy today of interviewing Helene Berger. She is the author of Choosing Joy, Alzheimer's, A Book of Hope. And if you head over to www.feminineroadmap.com forward slash episode 102, I will have links for ways for you to connect with Helene and to get a copy of her book. I would highly encourage you to consider getting several copies because I suspect there's many people who need this message to bolster and encourage them. And as always, you can head over to Spotify, Podbean, Google Play, Stitcher, and iTunes, and you can subscribe. And I would ask that you would subscribe and rate and review the podcast. Please, please, please share this podcast with other people. It is so important that these conversations of hope and encouragement and the resource that Feminine Roadmap is gets out to more and more women. Let's link arms together. And ladies, today, remember that life is full of the unexpected, but how we react makes all of the difference. I look forward to chatting with you all next week. Thank you for being with us today. Have a great week. Bye-bye.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.